Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today, we welcome to the studio Rebecca Holmes, who not only is a friend of the Betcher Foundation and a personal friend of mine, but a community champion for education in Colorado. If ever I could describe someone as having the perfect match between who they are, how they lead, and their work, it would be Rebecca, the president and CEO of the Colorado Education Initiative, or CEI. The intersection Rebecca lives at combines education policy, practice, innovation, and improvement. Rebecca's work as an educator started as a teacher in Denver Public Schools, of which she's a product, before taking on numerous other roles that have helped to shape her as a driver of change. Today, Rebecca is a born collaborator and thought partner to school district leaders across Colorado, focusing on the talent pipeline and how school systems can reimagine teaching and learning. As much as anyone I know, Rebecca lives the mantra that leadership is an activity. Rebecca, welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories. I can't tell you how excited we are to have you in the studio. Thanks, Katie. This is really fun. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Well, we're glad you're here and we'll dive right in. So you grew up in Denver in the 1980s and 90s when the city and the state of Colorado were a very different place than they are today. Talk about that era and what it was like to be a Denverite at that time. You couldn't ask me a better question to get me talking and to poke a little fun at myself. I am one of those born and raised here folks who can get a little overattached to my sentimentality about the old Colorado and the old Denver. Um, I'm married to a transplant, so Mm -hmm. I am transplant welcoming, but I do light up when I find other Denver natives and Colorado natives. You know that. You know this, Colorado wasn't on the map nationally back then, and I think we had a little chip on our shoulder about that. When I left for the first time for college, people really did ask me on the East Coast if I had skied to school, um, and they referred to where I was from as a flyover state. I didn't yet know the retort we have now, which is that flyover state is where your food is grown. Um, (laughs) I learned that one later. Um, But I had also lived through in the 80s, um, like many of us did, the savings and loan crisis. My dad lost his job in that time. And you remember folks from other states where there was still a lot of oil and gas money would come here and ski. And Denver was still really struggling. And I think on one hand, we had sort of an underdog mentality a little bit that I think I still carry with me, hopefully mostly in good ways. And my experience of Denver was really racially diverse. Mm. And I think we lost a little bit of that. We gentrified so quickly as a city that sometimes I think we're still struggling as a community to remember what it is we stand for and what knits us together. Um, At the same time, there was upside to that development. I'm a huge sports fan, and I lived through the building of Coors Field right down the street from Mm. where we sit today. That was pretty magical. I may have missed a few classes my senior year to watch our beloved Rockies. Nice. And the thing that was true of Denver then and is still true now, I ask people when they move here if this is still true because it's so important to me, is that it's still a one phone call town. That when you're new here and you want to make connections, it takes one contact and people open up their doors to you. They open up their connections to you. I'm really proud that despite all of our growth, I think Colorado and Denver in particular still act as that one phone call town for people who are new. I love that. 
Well, and let's talk about um, DPS. I know you graduated from Manual High School. That's one of the city's oldest and most tradition-rich schools. Maybe what are some of your favorite memories from those years? Um, and what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, geez. Um, you know, if your listeners don't know Manual, a lot of cities have a school like this. It's the place where no matter where you were educated afterwards, it still leads in your bio. Hmm. And if you meet, if one Thunderbolt meets another Thunderbolt, like nothing else matters in terms of what might be your differences. Um, at the time I was there, DPS was still under mandatory integrational busing. And that had led to what's often called suburban white flight. So while my family partially stayed in Denver just out of financial necessity, it also often felt like a political and a social choice to stay here and to be in that school, rooted for so many generations of manual alums in justice and in a sense of how you define community. My sisters and I span 11 years of manual graduates, so there's a lot of pride there. And I was there in the early 90s, which was a time of real consciousness raising around race, not, not in the same way as the last four or five years in our country, but still in a really important way. And, you know, my formative memories of that time were so positive, even though some of that was forged in response to real tragedy and hardship for our community. I took for granted what it meant to have friends um, and really close relationships across lines of difference. I certainly didn't understand until later what a gift it was to my own consciousness and my own definition of community to grow up as a white person in a predominantly black and Latino school system. It wasn't perfect. The honors classes, as we say in education, the honors classes didn't match the hallways, mm. which is something I've spent the rest of my career uh, having shaped my work. So Rebecca, during the time when you were in high school and starting to make that transition, who were your role models at the time? And in particular, when you were thinking about leadership? Yeah. So when I think about this question, it's funny that I didn't think I necessarily wanted to work in education because it's telling that as early as high school and college, I looked up to two superintendents, mm -hmm. Dr. Evie Dennis and Dr. Seal Chavez, who you know well. I do. I had a middle school teacher and a high school teacher who really had so much to do with the trajectory of my life. And then I volunteered on a campaign when I was 11. And so representative, the late representative Pat Schroeder uh, really, I think, shaped how I th think about politics and policy. Love that. So you graduate from Manual, and you alluded to this, but you went to the East Coast, and you walk on the Yale University campus in New Haven, Connecticut. What was li that like for the Denver girl? Oh, it was complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so I had uh, sort of drawn a line down either coast and tried to get as far away as fast as I could. And what doing that did for me was, was two-sided. It deeply opened my worldview, which I think I had just enough self-awareness at 18 to know that I needed and wanted. And it also taught me that I am Colorado through and through. Mm. I so quickly realized that while I was going to get a great experience, I wanted to come home. You know, I think in those early years, and I, I think about this now because I do so much work with, with young people and for young people, in those early years, your identity formation is social, right? And so you decide who you are, sometimes in relationship to other people and sometimes in reaction to things other people say to you. And I remember my first year in college, someone said to me, they were talking to me about how I'd have so much more opportunity if I stayed on the East Coast mm -hmm. after college. And I said, well, there's just, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm going home. Um, and this person said to me, this friend of mine said to me, I can't imagine loving a place that much. And it was just so clear to me that that was defining of who I was. Mm. So I came home to Colorado. I tried to leave a few other times, but I'm here for good. 
you know, the other thing about being at Yale as a student who grew up, you know, sort of with a very different worldview and absent that kind of social capital, I was really shaped by academically realizing that most of my peers had, for example, already read all the books we were being assigned. And I remember thinking that so many friends of, my of mine from home deserved this kind of rich academic experience, probably more than I did, and just weren't getting it. You know, there's a quote that genius is equally distributed and opportunity is not. And I just really learned early on that if you're handed an opportunity like that, educationally or otherwise, your job is to figure out how to work to change that inequity in some way. Wow, love that. And I don't remember that I know the answer to this question. Did you study education at Yale? And, or how did you end up as a middle school teacher right after that? <laughs> no, um, you could barely even like find a path to teaching at Yale. You know, there's not a big ROI on, on that decision. <laughs> and in fact, my senior year, a classmate of mine said to me, gosh, you're going to be a classroom teacher in inner city Denver. And I quote, what a waste of a Yale education. Ugh. And same thing. That's one of those defining moments of, you know what, I can be offended or I can just be crystal clear. And I was crystal clear that I wanted to come home and teach, in part because I found my place at Yale actually off campus in the working class New Haven community where mm -hmm. there are hundreds of opportunities um, as undergraduate students to be involved in that community. And mine were all through working with kids and working in classrooms. So I kind of tried really hard not to be a teacher. I wanted to be a lawyer or a politician or a something that was going to make lots of big change. But I had this sense that if I didn't come home and teach, I remember saying that every boring day at a water cooler, I'll wonder if I made the wrong decision. Mm. And I just knew if I didn't do it, then I might not do it. Well, we're glad you did. Well, and I have to ask, what were some of the biggest learnings from when you were a middle school teacher? Oh, being a good middle school teacher requires two things, an absurd sense of humor and the ability to see everyone's greatest potential. Mm. I think those two things actually help me in all sorts of my leadership journey right now, all parts of my leadership journey right now. And I'm fortunate to be in close contact with a handful of my students from back then. They're now in their early 30s. I think there's probably two big lessons from classroom teaching. And, and I meet so many teachers who think they aren't leaders and they couldn't be more wrong. You make so many micro decisions as a teacher that are about the future of other people, which is leadership. The first thing I learned as a teacher that I, I hear from my former students and is incredibly flattering is that they always knew how much I cared about them. There's research about this that we use at CEI from Zaretta Hammond about being a warm demander. And nobody trained me how to do that. I think I just learned it from my own educational experience. And being a warm demander in the classroom is the same as being a warm demander as a leader. And I just, like I said, I meet so many teachers who don't think they're leaders and they couldn't be more wrong. If they're doing it right in their classroom, they have all the capacity to lead in whatever stage they want. The second thing I learned as a teacher is that our, our educators are so often swimming upstream in systems built for a totally different era or for different results than we want. And I luckily paid attention to the fact that I was really interested in system decisions and system conditions around my school. I worked for a principal, Karen Lefevre, who was later on my board at CEI, who helped me see that there was a career path in education systems change that would leverage what I learned as a teacher, but would lean more into my instincts around systems and organizational leadership. Awesome.
And you did that for three years. And at, then as part of your Colorado tour, I know you did a fellowship at the El Pamar Foundation, one of our state's great philanthropic organizations before heading to graduate school. You had to go east again, I guess, went to Harvard this time. Tell me about that motivation, that transition from all those things, because you basically covered all the sectors there. <laughs> I did. It's, it is. It's a, it's a three sector career. Yeah. You know, it actually was more intentional than it sounds, and it's because of a dear mentor. So I think about this story a lot. Um, I was teaching middle school, and I was like a pretty good teacher. I wasn't, I wasn't there long enough to be a great teacher. I now get to work with great educators. And I spent my summers working for a college access nonprofit, mm. and I had a mentor through that organization, Marilyn Johnson, and I was planning to go to policy grad school. And she knew me really well. And I, I think about her a lot when I think about the young people in my own organization in my life. How do you see somebody early in their career, really, really see them, and then take an opportunity to just point out a path that they might not have thought about yet? And Marilyn said to me, Rebecca, with all due respect, you're going to hate policy school. Um, this makes my current work a little ironic. She said, everything you like is fast-moving, half-baked, and entrepreneurial. You need to go to business school. And I was a middle school English teacher who had not taken a math class since I dropped calculus in high school. I thought, like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> what business do I have on, a, on an MBA campus? But she was right, because I cared so much. For as much as I cared deeply about my students, I was always way more interested in the system conditions around our school and around our system. Not more interested in my students, just more interested than, than other things in policy. And... I realized I didn't want to go directly from teaching to business school. That would have felt like too big a leap. And I was super fortunate, as you mentioned, to end up in the leadership fellowship um, that, that Elpamar has offered now for almost three decades. Awesome. So take us then on your journey to the other coast. You went to the Bay Area and back to education, right? Kip. Well, first, there... first to Deloitte. Deloitte. I did my oh, little stint yes. in San Francisco mm -hmm. um, doing all sorts of organizational change and mergers and acquisitions consulting. Okay. You know, it was a tough slog for me to be in work that wasn't mission driven, but I knew I had so much to learn. And I really do leverage what I learned at Deloitte um, to this day in terms of organizational leadership, finance, culture change. I was really itching not only to get back home, but also to get back to the work that I love. And when when KIPP Colorado was hiring its first executive director, they sent me their business plan. And I said, well, I have no interest in the job, but I'm happy to see if I can lend you any advice. I had helped open another school in Denver. And so I had like a little bit of wisdom maybe to offer. Um, but it was also the downturn. It was 2008. And my job in the corporate sector quickly had become large scale layoffs, mm. which meant that that itch to get back to work that was about hope and human development and kids got a whole lot stronger. And that's the role that brought me home. There's a lesson in there too, which is I applied for the job thinking I wasn't actually totally qualified for the job. And I remember thinking, I'll just do this so that my resume will be on somebody's radar when they get the job. Hmm. And you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So like, let's just give it a shot. And I think about that too. You know, women, we tend to not apply for things when we don't think we're 100% qualified. And that's, that's right. you know, just such an important lesson at that stage of your career. You got to give it a shot and, and make the best of it if you're the right person for the role. Awesome. Did your perspective on leadership change in that period of those years, right, where you, you have the 
this perspective at Deloitte, then you're at KIPP and you, you're coming into this role. How did that evolve? Yeah, I was a 30-year-old CEO, Katie. <laughs> if it, I, That's like a hallmark if of anyone Edward Form. Anyone could do it, it could do <laughs> right. you, my friend. I'm not sure. That yeah. was It was a rough go. But that's a hallmark of Ed Reform. You had these really young leaders managing principals in their 20s. I think in, in hindsight, yeah. lots of folks in education have realized that's maybe not ideal. And so all of my most important leadership lessons probably came from that era. First was that, this is something I respect so much about you, you know this too, you have to lead with both your head and your heart. Mm. As a young leader, I tried to put my heart on the side and had a little bit of imposter syndrome and thought like, I'll just know my way to all the right answers. And to the extent that this work is about caring about people, we'll put that in the back seat. It just didn't work for me. It's not who I am. Yeah. And I'm very lucky that I've had a second opportunity for organizational leadership where I think I get that at least a little more right. Um, and then the second is I thought my job was to know all the answers. And I see that in young leaders all the time, right? This fear that every time a board member asks me a question, every time a stakeholder asks me a question, my job is to to know the right answer. And, you know, you know, that you couldn't be more wrong. It's just to figure out how to ask better questions yourself, mm -hmm. how to really spot patterns, know what people need, listen deeply. But I had to get over some of that to do that job well. The third lesson is core to me, and it's core to work we do at CEI. And it's an arc of leadership that's critical, I think, in any social sector work. And it's learning how we move from doing things to people, to doing them for people, to ideally doing them with people. And in education in particular, school has been done to people mm. for so long in so many communities that to move to, to doing school with communities and with kids and with families, I think that's what we're on the precipice of in education right now. And it's just so much more authentic and so much more fun. Oh, I want to hear more and more and more about that. But I do want to capture the rest of the journey because I do want you to talk about CEI's work. So from KIPP, um, you did a turn in state government, right? You were yeah. at the State Department of Education. And I think that maybe further prepared you to land. And I'm sure what is your dream job now at CEI? So uh, walk us through that transition. Um, how did that all happen um, other perspectives and le leadership lessons along the way. Yeah, CEI is absolutely my dream job, except that I couldn't have dreamt it up. We're an unusual organization. <laughs> We're a statewide nonprofit. We're an education intermediary. There's very few organizations like us in the country. And so I probably couldn't have dreamt this thing up had I had I tried. But we do work on things I really care about, school and district pack practice, a lot on leadership. We're trying to drive innovation and improvement across the education ecosystem. We do that in deep, place-based, community-driven ways and with a strong commitment to relationships. So I get to do all that with the best team in the world. So I do pinch myself pretty much every day. Right now, our work falls into four categories, leadership and governance, family and community engagement, career-connected learning, which is our approach to reimagining high schools, social-emotional development, and then we're dabbling in one area, which you referenced in the introduction, really trying to play a bit in rethinking the future of the teaching profession, mm. elevating it, modernizing it, and even learning in leaning into AI as a tool for changing how we teach and learn. Oh, well, I can't let that one go. <laughs> um, say more about that. 
Yeah, I mean, we will certainly not be the subject matter expert on mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. And, you know, my family and friends and colleagues would laugh because I'm a little bit of a tech Luddite myself. I just know that this is going to change everything we do in schooling and beyond, of course. So we're doing the thing we do best, which is convening experts and convening the types of education stakeholders who don't often get in the same room, mm -hmm. and then lining up really interesting intersections of educators with tech entrepreneurs and families and students with tech policy advice to figure out how Colorado does a couple things where we really stay on the forefront in AI. You know, we're a bit of a tech hub in terms of employment, and we can't create a new Colorado paradox where our students aren't ready to not just work in but lead the future of industry as it becomes more and more tech-enabled and tech-influenced. So it's really exciting work to have young people and entrepreneurs and policymakers getting in a room to say, we can't be afraid of this thing. We've got to really be at the forefront of what it means for young people. And then the second part of that is, what does it mean for teachers? I am bullish on how we can use AI to take away some of the most rote and time-consuming parts of teachers' jobs so that they can be more human and more innovative with students. Mm, love that. Well, and across all the areas of your work, and I just love hearing what you're up to all the time. And so what are some of those future trends and things that you would like to see happen as education is being reimagined in any of those ways that you do that work? Yeah. So we're a little more secondary focused than elementary focused. So I'll focus a lot on high school. We have a long history in the high school reimagining right. space and high school redesign space. And you know, I think there's a myth in education right now that we're making some kind of binary choice between either having young people super academically prepared and college ready or having industry-rich, super relevant career pathway experiences in high school. And we get to work all the time in schools and districts that absolutely know it's not an either-or. It's a fair concern because the career and technical ed work of 30 years ago did put kids on either-or pathways. But we're not doing that anymore. And so the intersection of those two things is what young people are asking for. They want high school to feel relevant. They want to go into the world of work having had experiences that are academically rigorous and college preparatory and tied to the real world that they are so much closer to than we were when we were in high school and we thought the real world was further and further away. Right. And I love that. We've got some great models in Colorado. Maybe talk about what that looks like specifically in just one of the communities that you work in. Yeah. So my favorite project on this front is the Homegrown Talent Initiative, Yay. HTI. Yep. Um, there is plenty of great career pathway work happening in suburban and urban school districts, but this is a rural specific project. And you asked about El Pomar. Mm -hmm. El Pomar is, I'm an unlikely champion for rural because I am a through and through city kid, but El Pomar is where I fell in love with rural Colorado and CEI has worked all over the state, really drawing more and more attention to rural Colorado for all of our 16 years. So the Homegrown Talent Initiative was born out of a partnership between CEI and Colorado Succeeds. Uh, we received seed funding from a host of local funders, and we went to seven very carefully selected rural communities who had outstanding leadership and were ready to think really differently about how they involved industry and workforce and families and local government and kids in reimagining how their high schools became engines of economic development and in doing so became 
way more interesting places to go to school. So we had these seven communities, and I'll tell you like a little favorite story here. I brought this work to our board of directors. We were so excited. Our team was over the moon that we were going to launch these projects. And they looked at the list of districts. And in many ways, this project was to emulate work that we had learned about and helped support in Canyon City. And they said, mm, Rebecca, you've got a lot of places here with rivers and mountains, which is code for it's pretty easy to recruit people mm. to live there. And you know, there's a lot of talent in those communities. And my board did a thing that I think people do in Denver a lot. They misunderstood how much talent is all over Colorado. And they said, the place we really want to pay attention to in this project is Holyoke. No river, no mountain. Prove you can do this in Holyoke. And you've heard me talk about mm -hmm. the work in Holyoke awesome. over the last four years. Kyle Stump, who's the superintendent there, has pulled off an absolute incredible example of what reimagining your school in partnership with your community really looks like. And it's just one of the most inspiring exemplars. And it's mm -hmm. the place I go when I want to show people what's possible in public education, what's possible in rural communities, and how we see that schools are the heartbeat of a rural community. Absolutely. And just having spent some time there in the last month or so, it is awesome. What I, I feel jealous, honestly, yeah. that I didn't get to have that type of education and what they're doing. So very cool. Let's stick with rural one on one thing, because this is something that is near and dear to both of our hearts. And I think one of the fun places of intersection for our two organizations is the Rural Superintendents Academy, which of course, Betcher is a funder. Yes. So uh, just talk about that and, and share that story. Betcher is the funder. Yeah. So I'm going to start <laughs> with my gratitude for you going on that ride with us. First of all, RSA is the second time in my time at CEI that I've gotten to hire one of my mentors, which is, my gosh, another one of those reasons I get to pinch myself in this job. The first being Elliot Asp and now George Welsh, who runs our Rural Superintendent Academy. Mm -hmm. You know, we care deeply about leadership. And one of the best things you can do as a leader is make sure people tell you the truth. George came to me and he said, you're not doing enough on leadership. I said, George, how soon are you going to retire? Because I think you're right, but I want to know what... I know the guy for the job. How you want to help me solve that problem. And, you know, we think really deeply about the special role of a rural superintendent. Done well, that job can really drive the, like I said, drive the heartbeat of a community. If you get a leader in that role who sees everything that happens to and for young people in that community as part of their job they start to lead a little differently, mm. right? They lead a little bit more, almost like a mayor than a technocratic superintendent where they see that transportation matters and economic development matters and early childhood matters and family engagement matters. And what happens in the Rural Superintendent Academy is in part leadership development toward that end. It really is how George led. And so he's really getting to teach and inspire the next generation of superintendents. But that job is also incredibly lonely. And so it leverages people into what's now three cohorts worth of a network. And they really do. I have the enormous pleasure of just sort of lurking on their text chains and their email threads. They use each other. They leverage each other to make an incredibly important and lonely job mm. less lonely. So important to have those peers to talk to when things are hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I want to zoom back out into the state of education and leadership specifically. And I just think you're perfectly suited to answer this next couple questions. But thinking about leadership in the education sector or industry, what's the biggest myth or false narrative about that you think needs to be dispelled? Oh, there's more myths now than there ever have been in my 25 years of doing this work. So one I mentioned, which is this false choice between Mm -hmm. college prep and career relevance. The other two are sort of more at the root. One is this sense that maybe we don't even need public education, that we can privatize this thing and everybody will be fine. You know, independent and private schools play an important role in our ecosystem, but doing that at scale is at our peril. I think we forget that public education is at the cornerstone of our democracy. And the other thing that I think sometimes is underneath that instinct is a sense that maybe it's too dire and can't be improved. And I see this sometimes, particularly when Denver Public Schools is in flux, that some of our grass tops leaders get to a place of pessimism. Mm. And sometimes people joke that CEI is the good news organization, because what I say to people is, please get in my car and give me 45 minutes in either direction, northwest, south, or east, and we will show you a public education system that will remind you what's possible. And there are so many bright spots in this state The fact that our job is to sometimes network them and support them in going from good to great is just one of the biggest honors of my career. The last myth is that somehow our education leaders are endorsing some sort of extreme political agenda, left or right. You know, politically, I think we're in a time when many Americans wonder what happened to the political middle Mm -hmm. and wishes we had more centrist leaders. I know dozens of centrist leaders. They are school superintendents. You put your own political ideology at the door and you show up every day and you love everybody's kids equally, no matter how much they are arguing about your school board election or local politics or state politics. Those centrist leaders are in our school systems every day. I know it because I've, I I get to talk to one almost every day. And we have those leaders in our community across our state. So I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty defensive of our superintendents, and I think for good reason, because we're lucky to have incredible leaders who still want to do that very, very hard job. Absolutely. What needs to be elevated? What needs to be our focal point when it comes to education as Coloradans? Well, one thing you hear me talk about a lot, I knock on your door about this a lot, is school boards. Mm-hmm. It's not a fun topic. Who wants to run for school board? You want a thankless job where people are mad at you in the grocery store and nobody pays you any money. But it's so important. It's local democracy and practice. It's where we come together to care about this critical thing we do for kids in our local community. And school boards are full of really good people who decide to raise their hand to do a hard and thankless job where they often are overseeing the largest employer in a community, Mm -hmm. sometimes the largest municipal budget, and really navigating a ship that can change lives for young people. So you know that I care really deeply about school boards and try to get lots of other people to care about school boards. And then the other is that the Colorado paradox is still alive and well. We're one of the most educated states, but we still don't do the job that our young people in this state uh, need from us in terms of really strong educa- educational outcomes in every corner of the state. Right. If someone's interested in learning more about CEI or get engaged with your organization or work, other than sending them to the website, <laughs> what would you say? You know, public education is a big space and we are a 
interesting, multifaceted ecosystem here in Colorado. So if you are a public education champion, there is a place for you to engage. And I'm actually happy to send people to our website. Mm -hmm. They can email me and I will help you find that place to be engaged, whether that's through us or any of our great partners in the state. The other thing we're relaunching soon that we sunset before COVID is something called Seeing is Believing Tours. Mm. And we used to just put people on buses and, like I said, drive with me 45 minutes and come see an incredible school or meet an incredible set of families or walk into a really innovative high school. So we're going to relaunch those in 2024, and I'm excited to have people on the list to come along and see great things that are happening in classrooms across Colorado. That sounds great. Any final things that you wanted to talk about that I didn't have a chance to ask you before we go to the lightning round? Oh, the lightning round. Yes. All right, here goes. (laughs) Rebecca, what is your favorite Colorado hobby? Kayaking, but these days lakes, not rivers. Okay, got it. Your favorite Colorado landmark? Okay, there are two. My mountain answer is Lone Eagle Peak in Grand County. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful spot and worth the eight-mile hike in. But the most important landmark to me is in Denver. It's in Denver City Park. There's a place you can stand with the museum nearby and the skyline ahead of you. And it is twice where I was standing when I realized it was time for me to come home. Oh, I love that. What action hero do you most identify with? I struggled with this one, but I'm going with Anybody from the Percy Jackson series, because you know I care about this, they reframe ADHD and dyslexia as superpowers, and I so want our neurodivergent kids to know that they bring the gifts that are going to change our world. Amen, sister. What are you currently binging? Your show, podcast, book, what are you reading or watching or listening to? Okay, so like a lot of the people that you interview for this podcast, I read too much nonfiction. So I've started a new practice of one fiction book per quarter, Um, ideally that puts me into somebody else's world that I don't know anything about. So I'm reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin, which is about video game design, literally something I know nothing about. Interesting. I love it. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. As always, it's so much fun to visit with you. And thank you for your way you champion education in the state. We are so blessed to have you. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85-plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.